Good morning, and take your Bibles, please, to Luke 9. We're looking at verses 43 through 62 here, and as noted last week, Luke develops gospel themes by showing how they play out in various incidents of Christ's ministry. And then these same incidences are mirrored in other incidents which Luke records. For example, Peter confessed that Jesus was the promised and expected Christ, the Messiah, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 20. Then in verse 21, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. The reason, for, the reason that he charged them to tell no one was that their expectations of Messiah were not correct. They were looking for everything now. And Jesus said, no, it, it can't be now. It's, it's going to have to come after my suffering. And we, we see that here by the fact that the people here had already sought to take Jesus by force and to make him king after his feeding of the 5,000, according to the Gospel of John. He did not want his disciples to to be involved in that insurrection. See, they wrongly assumed that Messiah would in his first coming overthrow the Gentiles and reestablish the glory of David's throne in Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus introduced the kingdom in his initial not yet stage. This age is the not yet stage of the kingdom. And what they were expecting was the full realization stage, which would be in the age to come. And that would not be realized until after his return in glory. Thus Jesus informed them that he would not at that time be exalted on the glorious throne of David, as the Son of Man, according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, instead, what he faced, he describes here in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. However, and this is the interesting thing. He did give them a preview of that glory age when he took Peter, James, and John with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration eight days later. I, to me, that's a significant number, eight days. That's the, that is the new, uh, that's, that's the, the, the new age that's coming. Eight days later. And there he was transfigured before them. And there according to verses 20, 28 to 36 of the chapter. But even then, Peter misunderstood the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah represented the Old Testament. Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. All those were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they appeared with him and talked with him. And But here's the problem. Due to their, their sleepy condition, and isn't that typical of uh, Christians 
we we get a little sleepy and we're not listening we're not observing and due to their sleepy condition there they missed what uh, Pete, what uh, Moses and uh, Elijah were doing and speaking to Jesus. They were talking of Christ's departure. Not his, not his elevation to, to David's throne, but his departure. There in verse number 31. Nevertheless, Peter got all excited and he wanted to honor all three of them equally. And Luke adds, not knowing what he said. And here again, it, it, does that describe us? We jump to conclusions and we're ready to, to do things and God says, no, not yet, not yet. Because we don't know what we're saying. That's verse 33. So, the Father overshadowed them with a cloud and He spoke out and He said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Here's a, here's a theological truth for you. The Old Testament must be interpreted by Jesus. The Old Testament doesn't interpret Jesus. The Old Testament is interpreted by Jesus. We, we need to understand what the Old Testament means by listening to Jesus. That's verse 35. But the question is, did they listen to him? Well, not yet. <laughs> not yet. They were directed to do that, but they didn't do it yet. In fact, this is, the, this is to be observed in the incidents which are then following this. And so note first here the conduct of a faithless and mistaken generation. Remember when uh, they came down from the mountain, they met the other disciples who were uh, involved with a conversation with a, with a, a very distraught father whose son was demon-possessed, and they had brought this boy to Jesus to uh, have the demon cast out, and the disciples were unable to do so. And what was Jesus' response to them? You're a faithless and twisted generation. He lumped them in with all the other people there in that Jewish community. Why? A twisted, a faithless and twisted. The, the idea of, of twisted there is mistaken. You're a mistaken, a misdirected. Divert, your attention has been diverted to things that are not right. That it relates here to mistaken understanding with, with uh, concerning the, the present nature of the kingdom of God. And that resulted then in their faulty expectations. It would not be until they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that they would begin to finally and, and understand what was going on. Even in Acts chapter 1 there, Luke reports that Jesus presented himself alive to them, the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days significant 
40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that they still did not understand the twofold or two-stage nature of the kingdom was demonstrated by their then asking in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Instead, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father is fixed in his own authority. In other words, when I come back again, that's when we are going to see this kingdom. And only the Father knows when that will be. But you, here's your duty now. This is your expectation now. This is what the Lord wants for you now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, this kingdom in its initial stage is going to have to be established on the earth by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And you're the guys that are going to do it. You and those who will follow after you. And the reason then that for their being accused then of being this faithless and mistaken generation was in their thinking that what they did uh, that uh, was thinking what they did because they had did not yet have ears to hear. Remember Jesus said, you need ears to hear. Let these things sink into your ears. Ears to hear, Luke 8, 8. There, and ears to hear are those ears that are enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit and consequently were not yet ready to obey the Father's command to listen to Him. The Son, according to then Luke 9.35, this inability was then mirrored in the incidents that followed. Luke employs the rule of three. In other words, he likes to give three illustrations or three examples. We see that frequently in the Gospel of Luke. This rule of, of uh, three and uh, in in the first of these three, here there's two. By the way, there's two examples here that we're going to use in the passage. But in the first of these three, the disciples desired greatness over humility among themselves. In the second, they displayed rivalry and jealousy over others. And in the third, they displayed hate and vengeance toward those that opposed them. So let's look at that. First of all, after informing them that the Son of Man was to be delivered into the hands of men, verse 44, uh, they did not understand this thing, according to verse 45. Therefore, they began to argue among themselves as to which of them would be greatest. That's verse 46. Isn't that interesting? They were arguing. By the way, who was it that was doing the arguing? Well, Matthew tells us that it was the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Matthew adds the words, in the kingdom of heaven. 
in the kingdom. Who's going to be greatest in this kingdom? See, this is typical of human nature. They desired greatness over humility. That's a problem. We all struggle with that one. So to correct them, Jesus then brought a little child and set him in their midst and said, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Never forget years ago there when we were in White Bear Lake, I heard one, one man in our church there who had recently been elected as a, de as a deacon. He was sitting at a different table, but I heard, it, heard him talking to others there. This was a kind of mixed, it was, a, it was a men's gathering of various churches. And he's sitting back there, uh, in a sense, bragging about the fact that he was now a deacon. <laughs> I, 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 and I thought to myself at the time, does he not understand that the term, the very word deacon means a servant? He's not, he wasn't elected to some position of prominence in the church. He was elected to a position of service in the church. Yet, yet we get this idea that somehow we're elevating people into greatness. And Jesus said, no, it's not that way. For he who would be great among you must be the servant of all. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Chapter In Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. Childlikeness and humility must mark those who follow Christ. And Matthew adds a, a message that is greatly needed and to be sounded out in this wicked age. In verse, uh, chapter 18, verses four, 5 and 6, it says, Whoever would receive one such child of my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yeah, we need to get some millstones together. In Matthew chapter 20, right after Jesus had informed the disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem to die, in verses 17 through 19, perhaps I think the same instance that's recorded here in Luke, the mother of James and John requested that they sit on his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom. I think this is the very thing he's referring to. Mark has, uses the same instance, but he does not say that it was the mother. I, I believe these boys were these were boys at this point. And that's why their mother interceded for them. But uh, 
the, the other ten disciples then responded with some indignation. Who do you guys think you are? So Jesus addressed them there in verses 25 to 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Sadly, many in our churches have adopted the rules of the Gentiles. <laughs> They've lord, they lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But he said, it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man. Jesus uses that term, son of man. And it's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Where the ancient of days gives to the son of man a dominion that will never be taken away. You'd, you'd think Jesus Christ, he'd be strutting. I am the son of man. And one day he's going to sit on the throne and rule forever. In fact, he's ruling now at the Father's right hand. But he will be ruling in glory forever. But here, he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Hmm. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That has to come first before the glory. Their misunderstanding of the kingdom then caused the disciples to expose their prideful spirit in rivalry and jealousy among themselves. Boy, does that characterize some churches? Rivalry and jealousy. Now, in the second incident, the disciples reported to Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. That's verse 49. Now, here again, this episode exposed their petty spirit of rivalry. The issue here is not orthodoxy, but association. Think about it. Here's someone doing the very thing the disciples themselves were unable to do, cast out a devil. When that distraught father brought his son to them. So now they see this man casting out devils. Were they jealous? I think they, I think they probably were. They even sought to stop the man. Hey, don't do that. <laughs> Wait a minute. It, and it should have been obvious to them that the man was doing this work of exorcism because he had been granted the power of God to do so. And the scripture is very clear. He was doing it in the name of Jesus. And thus with genuine faith. I would contrast that with the failure of the sons of Sceva there in, in the 19th chapter of uh, Acts. 
who also sought to expel a demon in Jesus' name. But that demon responded by saying, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> and the poor boys uh, were uh, got the brunt of the thing because this guy overpowered them and beat them to a pulp and, s and sent them away naked. So Jesus then now rebuked his disciples for stopping the, t the work of a true follower. This fellow was a follower of Jesus. Just because he wasn't in their company does not mean that he was disqualified from serving Jesus. And according to verse number 50, Jesus said, Do not stop him, for one who is not against you is for you. His response, this, is, this response is in proverbial form. He states it as if it were a proverb. One who is not against you is for you. He uses the opposite of that form there uh, when in doing his work of binding the strong man there in uh, verse, in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Jesus, according to verse number 30, says, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, the issue here is not whether you are for or against Jesus. You cannot be neutral. I mean, it is. It is whether you're for or against Jesus. You can't be neutral. Not with Jesus. So in their misunderstanding of the kingdom, these disciples exposed their exclusive and competitive spirit with respect to others. That's not what we need. Third, the third incident there in uh, Luke 9.51, we read here, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. These are now ready to go to the cross. Right in our passage, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, his, his purpose is now settled. He's going to Jerusalem. Nobody is going to persuade him otherwise. And so we read here that he sent, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him to enter into a village of the Samaritans. Now, notice that, Samaritans. To make preparation for them, for him, and uh, they weren't to preach there. They weren't to do anything there. They were just simply to go there and seek provision from this village. Nevertheless, the Samaritans did not receive him. And we're told that they didn't because his face was set to for, uh, set toward Jerusalem. I I think we need to interpret that a little bit. It's very likely here that, that typical of, of the Samaritans, there was a hostility toward the Jews. As the woman at the well there in, in John chapter 4 expressed, you say Jerusalem is a place to worship, but, but our father said here on this mountain we are to worship. And Jesus said to her, the day is coming when it will neither be Jerusalem nor this mountain for the Father is going to seek true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
So, but here in this situation, it's very possible that they're saying, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem. Tell him to look someplace else for, for provision. So there's hostility here. And that hostility then becomes reciprocal. When, uh, when they come back, they said, hey, they don't want us here. And here again, notice who it is, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Driven by this hostility then toward the Samaritans, became vengeful. Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Boy, these guys don't want us. Let's burn them up. I love that. Uh, one thing I, I disagree with the English Standard Version here is it doesn't record his words in the rebuke, but the King James does. And I, I prefer this, this uh, uh, rendering. You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man, and here again, notice, Son of Man, this is the one that the... in. Eternity past was presented to the Ancient of Days who granted to him the dominion that Adam lost. See, he, the Son of Man is the second Adam. So he, he granted to him the dominion lost by Adam's sin. Granted him dominion over all the works of his hands, not only for that time, but forever. So here he says again, The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. <laughs> Verses 55 and 56. So, in this case, their misunderstanding of the kingdom caused these disciples to expose their hateful and vengeful spirit against their neighbors, particularly their hostile neighbors. So it's the natural instinct to preserve one's own life that causes the disciples to react to situations that confront them as in the text before us. And we do the same thing. This natural instinct also caused them to flee from Christ at his arrest in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56. This is, this is the expected impulse of all Adam's fallen race, self-preservation. It results, however, in spiritual loss, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's Luke 9, 24 and 25. It's only by the grace and the intervention of Christ that these men were eventually restored. True salvation sees the real loss that results from the natural self-life and grace gives the power to forget oneself and one's self-interest in order to pursue a life offered by the second Adam. That's what we want. So that brings me to this, the cost of following Jesus. And this is the second incident that we have won't be near as long on this, but 
the wrong attitudes of the disciples then needed to be corrected by their dying to themselves. As Jesus taught back in verses 23 to 26, if you would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. This needed development and further is further illustrated in the last verses there of chapter 9 in the second treatment of discipleship. There's two treatments of discipleship that are each given three illustrations, by the way. It's interesting. This uh, the second treatment of discipleship then closes the ninth chapter. And as Luke illustrated in the wrong response of the disciples in these three instances, in three instances, uh, as I said here, the rule of three, again, we see this employed here in these three con conversations uh, that close the, the chapter. Note that in the first conversation, the inquirer initiates the conversation and Jesus states his objection. In the second, the order is reversed. The fellow volunteers, but Jesus then uh, explains his problem. And then the in the third, we have, I think, the, the man also initiates the dialogue and raises the condition to which Jesus then adds a comment. So let's notice those just briefly. First of all, the first man addressed Jesus in, in the language of a disciple, a follower. He's the one who initiated it. Verse 57, he expressed a willingness to leave all and to follow Jesus wherever he went. He was making a sweeping promise. And Jesus, however, knew his heart. And he explained, which he, I think explains his response. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I think you're looking for something that, I'm not, that you're not going to find with me. See, have you really seriously counted the cost? Jesus was saying to him, in effect, the Son of Man is going to suffer. And those who follow him are also going to suffer in this age. Just like Ron pointed out here from Peter. Nevertheless, remember that Jesus also promised that the Father would meet every need of those who did entrust their lives to Him and His will and purpose and follow Him without question. Yeah. Jesus was not saying, you're going to come with me and you're going to have to sleep on the hard ground and you're not going to have any comfort, creaturely comforts. No, no, it's not what He's saying. He's saying, this is what men pursue. Don't pursue this. Rather pursue the will of God. And we don't know the outcome of his approach. We don't know if this fellow followed him or not. Did he walk away? We don't know. And then the second incident... Jesus initiated the conversation. He said to a man, follow me. There in verse 59. This time, the man expressed a willingness to follow Jesus, but only after Jesus enabled him to fulfill a family obligation. And uh, uh, the question here is, 
he said, let me go bury my father. Was he talking? Was he, did his father recently pass away there and uh, they just hadn't yet had the funeral? I don't think that's the issue here. I think that we need to understand the social custom of the day. And the father was probably not dead. He's probably an elderly man. And the son is the eldest son of the family, which, le uh, which left him the obligation of providing for his aged father until he passed away. So here he was seeking to stick with the social custom, said, I'm, I'll follow you, Lord, but I've got to stay with my dad until he passes away, and then I'll be free to come and follow you. We don't know when that would be. <laughs> but Jesus rebuked him by telling him that loyalty to Jesus had to come before everything else. Social obligations, family obligations. In fact, Jesus said, if you don't leave father or mother, brother, sister, wife, and follow me, you don't have any part in the kingdom. Does that mean that Jesus means that a man should just up and abandon his family? Not at all. But unlike the, the typical, our typical uh, situation, it means I need to understand that Jesus must come first before anything else. And if he does, then all of those other, other family obligations are going to find them, their fulfillment expressed in ways that you couldn't even begin to imagine. Jesus has to come first. And so Jesus said to him, leave the dead. And it, it sounds hard. <laughs> Listen to it. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. <laughs> that does sound a little hard. Yes, you just leave your dead to bury their own dead. No compassion. <laughs> no sympathy. But as for you, what's your obligation? Proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 60. You proclaiming the kingdom of God? <laughs> now, in the third situation here, the man responded, I will follow you, Lord. Verse 61. And it is very likely that Jesus had also initiated this invitation uh, due to the con uh, Greek construction of the sentences here. Yet another said, uh, yet another said, which indicates that it's a response to what Jesus initiated. However, as with the second, his condition was of following Jesus was that he first be able to go and say goodbye to his family. Now, this is not nearly the obligation of the first. He didn't say, I've got to go home and take care of my dad until he passes. It just says, I'm going to go home and say goodbye. But here again, Although this farewell was not the emotional equivalent of burying one's loved one, it does show the need for a full surrender and sacrifice required for true discipleship. Jesus responded, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the what kingdom of God. Now, here I think what's interesting here is it's a reference to Elisha, the call of Elisha. Back in the Old Testament, when Elijah was ready to go to meet the Lord, and he cast his cloak 
on, El on Elisha. What was Elisha doing? The scripture tells us he was plowing. He was plowing with, with a, a s oxen. He had a big farm and a, and he had big, a big tractor that he was using too. Right? Pl and pulling this plow. And when Elisha came, Elijah came by, uh, he, he cast his cloak on him and Elisha responded, let me first, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. That's 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 20. Although Elijah permitted his request in this incident, Jesus takes it to another di uh, dimension. Elisha was plowing, as I said, which required his full concentration on the field that was before him, guiding the plow with his left hand and goading the oxen with his right hand. And what would looking away do? Crooked furrows. <laughs> Crooked furrows. Jesus said, no, you've got to... This requires full concentration. It requires full concentration. Well, let me close. In the text before us, Luke 9.23, the cross is used as a figure of speech. It was real, but it's a figure of speech too. And since an actual crucifixion here would uh, frustrate Christ's intention, you know, take up your cross daily. <laughs> you couldn't do that daily if you, if you, don't, you can only die one time. <laughs> you can't die every day. Yeah, but the apostle Paul said, I die daily. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31. No, what it's, what's the reference here to, and, and I think it's obvious from the use of the word daily, is that conformity to Christ and holiness is a continual process. And it has to be renewed constantly. As the believer seeks full sanctification. It requires the endurance of continual self-sacrifice which Jesus declared to be a mark of genuine salvation. He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. It's not your endurance that saves you. It's the grace of God enabling that endurance that saves you, but it is evidenced in your endurance. Too many times we have people who profess to be Christians and fall away. I, they, I believe they can come back, but I think the mark of eventually of their of their the genuineness of their salvation is their endurance to the end. Patient endurance will, according to James chapter one verse four, have its perfect work when our suffering yields a calm state of mind that can face the cross with smiling countenance that does not ask the Lord to ease the pain. We understand that we are gaining more of Christ as we lose more of self. Again, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, I consider the sufferings of this present age, that is, this age of kingdom expansion, not worthy to be compared with the glory, that is, of the kingdom fulfillment at the end of the age, as it will it shall be revealed in us. Now, we're not there yet. So let's keep on keeping on.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as we see it in the Gospels. May we have ears to hear. May we let these, ear, these words sink deep into our ears. May we not be as the disciples who did not understand what was said, but rather that we be attentive and patient and hear the words of Jesus as he tells us what is our expectation and what is our service and what is our obedience and what does it look like. Lord, help us to die to self, to live to you. We'll praise you and thank you for what you'll do in us by the grace and power of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen.